Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. Chocolate. Of all the possible pubescent allergies to develop, why did it have to be chocolate? Quite suddenly, at the age of 14, I developed migraines, molten lava that erupted behind the forehead to pull behind my eyes for days. Migraine has three well-known dietary triggers, cheese, red wine and chocolate. I didn't like cheese, had not yet succumbed to alcohol, and that left only chocolate. A regimen of chocolate cake, mousse, yoghurt, milkshakes, ice cream, cornflakes and bars concertinaed into a crashing halt. Who could have known? No chocolate, no migraine. It was simple, except for the sweet tooth that remained. Now, if you go looking for sweet things without chocolate, you realise that 90% of the offering is suddenly unavailable to you. Chocolate is everywhere, a delivery mechanism for sugar and vice versa. So, I turned to marzipan, custard and toffee as substitutes, the latter being the most versatile. The king of toffee is unquestionably fudge, whose basic ingredients are caramelised sugar, butter and milk. But within that family, the dolce de leche or condensed milk variety monopolised the superlatives. Long before my chocolate downfall, a wondrously crumbly and gooey Polish fudge called krufki had hopped onto my tongue and into my life. It means little cows in English and comes in a yellow wrapper with a picture of a Silesian cow. Unusually, the ends are folded to points which are not turned down like other sweet wrappers. These sweets have existed since 1921 and are so well known that they confuse Google Translate. I recently translated a popular pre-war song that my grandparents sang and, unconvincingly, the green fields were filled with fudge. Poetic, but wrong. Felix Pomorsky established a sweet factory in Poznan in 1921, eventually employing 40 people and producing 200 varieties of confectionery. During the war, he was ousted from the management of the company by the Germans. Post-war, Felix moved to Milanovec to re-establish the business, but in 1942, the communist state nationalised the company and the quality of the products declined. After Felix's death in 1963, his son Lezek took over. Now, the greatest struggle was with communist bureaucracy and, significantly, the inability to set the sale price of their product. Teetering on bankruptcy, legend has it that they were saved by a local apparatchik with a sweet tooth, who relented and gave permission for the management to raise their prices. Today the factory is run by Felix's grandson Peter, who employs 15 staff. For my mother Monica, Krufki featured regularly in her infancy in Poland. For in 1944, Monica was forced to hide under a table all day while her mother went out to work. The five-year-old was warned never to come out and, under no circumstances, go to the window or a German monster would devour her. 
For companionship, she had a book, a doll, and a potty. Her daily reward for being good was presented to her by her mother, too krufki, to be sucked, savoured, and slowly swallowed. To train an infant not to cry out and to stay in one place on pain of death is such a disturbing proposition. But for Jews hiding in Nazi-occupied Poland, choices had to be made that are unimaginable today for you or me. Monica was an especially self-contained child. She did not always rush out to greet her mother the moment she returned home in the evening. She would lose herself in mythical fantasies she'd created with dragons and princesses. One day, Monica did venture to the window. When she did, a sniper's bullet singed her hair and buried itself in the wall opposite. What Monica feared most was her mother's wrath at such flagrant disobedience without any understanding that she had come within a hair's breadth, literally, of losing her head. She had learned by then that obedience was neither an advisory nor an optional extra. It was the code you accepted to try to live for one more day. But even the most disciplined five-year-olds rebel, overwhelmed by the gravitational pull of curiosity. And, of course, her daily prize of two krufki might now be in jeopardy. Her mother was, of course, relieved within her anger at Monica's recklessness. They had come so far together in this hellscape, she would not lose her daughter this way. Thirty years later in London, Annie, our housekeeper, came home one day clutching a bag of sweets she'd just bought. Monica put her hand in the bag, a lucky dip, and pulled out a small rectangle with a yellow wrapper and the logo of a cow. It was exactly as she remembered it. She was flawed, subjugated once again to the stricture of Warsaw kindergarten etiquette, rules made especially for her by those who loved her and imposed by strangers who didn't. She could not believe her eyes. A bag of golden nuggets snatched from nostalgia? No, this unexpected reappearance of her once daily reward for obeying her mother grabbed her by both ankles and upended her. In a winking eye, the constructs that Monica had assembled to redefine her identity as a well-groomed English lady disappeared like a desert mirage. This new facade had been erected so painfully during the period she herself describes as her second childhood. But by the time she married, she could dip automatically between a world governed by fear and suspicion that was the habitat of her parents and the sunnier life of a new family and motherhood. Occasionally, a spark would fly from the vault of memories she kept locked away, a reminder that her early childhood would never abandon her. From now on, Krufki would only ever taste bittersweet. My parents reminded me constantly 
that were it not for the kindness of the ants in London, I wouldn't have shoes on my feet or a stitch on my back. The kindness of my emigrant ants, women who had left as children and never married, was expressed in the weekly delivery of a parcel of clothing procured for us in London jumble sales. These women worked long hours in the kitchen of a gentleman's club, the Athenaeum, as we called it, in Pall Mall, a location so different from the little cottage where they grew up in Clonmore, just outside Care, County Tipperary. Much of their scarce free time was devoted to tracking down the whereabouts of the best jumble sales in London. They'd keep a sharp eye out for signs advertising such sales as they travelled by bus to and from their council flats. The information about time and place would be recorded in little notebooks kept in their handbags for that purpose. They always maintained that church jumble sales were the best. Posh people with quality clothing donated to those charity efforts. The ants crammed a great array of eclectic clothing and footwear into corrugated brown paper, secured many times with duct tape and string. I can picture them queuing up in the post offices in Camberwell or Vauxhall, handing over the booty to some other emigrant figure behind the counter. Our postman, Jim Hayde, was another collaborator in the process of ensuring that we were suited and booted. He huffed and puffed up Kilcommon Hill in all weathers to deliver the parcels, something he need not have done. He'd be fully in his rights to tell us the goods were at the post office for collection, my father remarked, adding that Jim was obliging us. He was our haute couture accomplice, our catwalk commentator, as he sat by the fire with his mug of tea. He rested in our kitchen, with the rain dripping from his cape and peaked cap, hoping that the parcels contained something to turn us into smashers. We fell upon the bounty, wrestled with the wrinkled brown paper, tugged the blunt scissors through the thick tape and hacked at the twine my aunts had knotted many times around the parcels. A tangle of clothing spilled from the thick brown paper onto the kitchen table, still littered with the remains of the breakfast, the porridge bowls and mugs. We rifled through the diverse assortment, crammed our feet into two small shoes with the determined hope of the ugly sisters, ignoring the pinch and bite, telling ourselves it was nothing that couldn't be cured. We'll stuff the toes with newspaper and they'll stretch. We'll soften the leather with Vaseline. We won't be bested. A suit for my father was often enclosed. A suit befitting a clergyman of the Anglican tradition. A cast-off with a genteel ecclesiastical air. My father would be summoned from his bed to join us in the kitchen and try on that suit over his long johns and saggy nighttime vest. Flannel or herringbone tweed would be arranged over his night attire. My mother and the postman would stand back to evaluate the fit, recommend a tog here and there as they considered the mannequin. 
A paisley scarf with tassels was often retrieved from the pile and draped around his neck if something jaunty was deemed necessary to brighten up the solemnity of the cloth. A trilby hat, complete with band and bow, was perched on his head. The ensemble complete, he'd be led to the mirror. My mother was always on the lookout for a swing coat with a fitted bodice and a nice full skirt. Something elegant but comfortable and practical too for the bicycle she cycled to town for the daily messages. I remember the wistful way she twirled in front of the mottled glass of the mirror when such a coat did arrive. A navy swing coat, maybe first worn by some rector's wife who thought it a wise investment to shell out for the fully lined and durable. As for me, I rifled through the tangles looking for bell-bottom trousers or turtlenecks cast off by some English girl who was moving on to a preference for pencil skirts or tea dresses now her mother was elected to the select vestry. Thanks to the generosity of the aunts and the collaboration of our postman, we also had the best-dressed scarecrows in the parish. I recall one sporting a mulberry jacket with black trim and his elegant lady friend decked out in a big yellow sun hat. A cardigan sprigged with flowers lightly draped around her wooden shoulders. An unlikely couple, there amongst our cabbages and onions, flaunting their London finery. There's this recurring dream I've had for the past 20 years. I'm on the Kilkenny team in an All-Ireland hurling final. Under packed stands, the crowd roars as the ref throws in the slitter to start the match. It breaks to me. I flick it up and hand pass to the legendary DJ Carey. He shimmies past a defender, flicks the ball over the bar, points his hurl at me and says, more of the same, Tim. But the next time, I'm exposed because I've never played hurling before. I repeatedly fail to lift the slitter. The crowd groans. I'm engulfed by Tipperary players. Then I wake up. This dream dates from when I attended my first hurling match. I'd grown up in America playing baseball and South Dublin playing soccer and hockey. But watching the pace, skill and beauty of the ancient sport live that day had a profound almost spiritual effect on me. And at that match, a regret was born. I wished I'd grown up playing hurling. I'd been very good at baseball, decent at hockey. Maybe I could have been good at hurling. Who knows, I sometimes fantasised. I might have played county. But it was far too late. Hurling's a sport you need to play from a young age. Sure, they're born with hurls in their hands in Kilkenny, I was told. But though I couldn't play... I lived the sport vicariously through my daughter's camogie and my son's hurling teams at Kula GA Club. For 15 years, I pucked with them, collected cones, 
chased Aaron Slitters, did stats reports, shouted encouragement, and even, in time, became a mentor for both of their teams. But as other regrets in my life faded, that hurling regret grew. Then, two years ago, I saw a notice on the Kula website. Hurling for dads and other lads, inviting anyone, regardless of experience, to sign up for social hurling. Unexpectedly, my desire to play hurling was put to the test. Did I really want to do this? There was only one answer, and I became part of the Kula social hurling group under the tutelage of the kind and patient Cyril. Our training group ranged from 30 to 60 years of age. We were all shapes and abilities. There were Irish, Italian, American, English. I'd forgotten how much fun chasing a ball around a field with a bunch of other men could be. And, always a forward, I rediscovered the thrill of scoring. When Cyril announced that he was trying to organise challenge matches with other social hurling teams, the excitement in the group was visible. A match. Then, Covid hit. As people struggled with illness, loss and grief, I selfishly feared that my hurling career would be over before it began. Maybe I'd put on too much weight. Maybe the group would break up. But, after waves of lockdown, finally we togged out in Kula's famous red and white for our first social hurling match. It was a disaster. The apparent social hurling opposition were seriously good and mostly young. They hammered us. My most notable contribution on my long-awaited hurling debut was getting a slitter, panicking, losing control and doing a full head over heels as I swung my hurl. After three matches in which I panicked progressively less, it was announced that Kula would enter a fifth team in the Dublin County Hurling Championship and that this would be open to the social hurlers. This was it. A first official hurling match at the age of 53. Eight minutes into that match, chasing after a man half my age, I pulled my hamstring. Limping off, bitterly disappointed, the words of writer Richard Ford came to mind. Our lives are lived in seas, surrounded by shipwrecks of disappointment. I wondered if I'd ever have another chance. I felt foolish to have even tried. But, against the odds, the hamstring recovered in time for the last championship match. The first time I got the slitter, I spun away from my marker and, on the run, scored a point from 40 metres. I raised my hands and punched the air, much to the amusement of a young couple who had stopped to watch. For the next 60 minutes, I was in the thick of the match. I didn't panic. I got the ball a number of times, took shots, passed the slitter, won a couple of frees, took a couple of belts and made an improbable high catch. Nine points down at one stage, our team battled to get it back to four at the final whistle. Though we lost, and we all hated losing, rarely have I been more delighted with myself. Because it's not often in life that you get to make an adulthood dream come true. I just played a hurling match. A real hurling match. And I did okay. My marker even described me as an old guy who had all the moves. And now, it's memories of that match, and that remark, and not a regret, that I will carry with me until the end of my days.
Despite his enormous popularity, Robert Burns, Scotland's immortal bard, whose birthday we celebrate on January 25th, remains a problematic figure. On a composite assessment, considering productivity, range, artistic achievement and affection, few writers can match him. Indeed, more than two centuries after his death, Burns' work has reached such a level of familiarity that many of his lines, like those of Shakespeare, Yeats and Heaney, have entered the language. The best laid plans of mice and men, to see ourselves as others see us, a man's a man for all that, the list goes on. Since 1802, the date of the first recorded Burns Supper held in his native Ayrshire, Burns and his great corpus of work have been celebrated the world over, from Kilmarnock to Kolkata. Translated into 120 languages, his poetry is widely taught in schools and universities. It is said there are more statues erected in his honour than from any other literary figure. The former Soviet Union has honoured just four English-speaking poets with commemorative stamps, Blake, Byron, Milton and Burns. His old Lang Syne may be the most frequently performed song in the Western world. An even better song of his is Therefore Honest Poverty, which expresses the earnest wish that man to man the world o'er shall brothers be for all that, was sung with such gusto when the Scottish Parliament reconvened in 1999, the roof of the chamber was said to be sorely tested. And yet there hangs over the Burns industry, as detractors would have it, a pall of scepticism that clouds critical judgment. Some have regarded Burns as little more than an ill-educated ploughman peddling a profitable line in vernacular wordplay. Since his early death in 1796, metropolitan critics have delighted in insulting both the man and his work. How can a poet so widely read be any good, they chorus? A. E. Houseman once compared him to a Scotch commercial traveller in a country hotel, leaning on the bar and chatting up the barmaid. Jeremy Paxman raised the hackles of Scots everywhere by declaring our national poet no more than a king of sentimental doggerel. In 2009, the 250th anniversary of Burns' birth, some historians argued that promoting a drunken, misogynist philanderer as a Scottish hero was wildly inappropriate. As a Scotsman, I may be biased, but to my mind, Burns' position in world literature does seem unique. And when you consider that all of these achievements were compressed into a life of 37 years, blighted by poverty and ill health, they become all the more remarkable. Far from being the mere peasant poet of sentimental legend, Burns was extremely well-read, a man of great intellect and a true pioneer of the 18th century Romantic movement. Byron praised his antithetical mind and the qualities of tenderness, roughness, delicacy, coarseness, sentiment, sensuality, dirt and deity, all mixed up in that compound of inspired clay. But what really sets Burns apart is the broad sweep of his talents. If he'd only been a poet, his poetry would still have endured, but he was so much more than that. He was an avid collector of Scottish folk songs and musical airs, he borrowed, he revised and repurposed the ancient material, turning them into songs which many would be familiar with today. He wrote wonderful songs of his own, songs that would sear the heart 
like my love is like a red, red rose. Till all the seas gang dry, my dear, and the rocks melt with the sun, I will love thee still, my dear, while the sands of life shall run. Burns was Thomas Moore, Percy French, and Sean O'Reada, all rolled into one, a true champion of the music of his native land. And while he wrote elegantly in standard English, he was also a champion of the Scottish dialect. In the Kilmarnock edition of poems, chiefly in the Scottish dialect, Burns demonstrated that the vernacular was a fit medium for the expression of poetry in famous poems such as The Twa Dugs, The Cotter Saturday Night, and To a Mouse. Seamus Heaney, a huge admirer, spoke of how Burns' poetry got under my official classroom guard and into the kitchen life of my affections through its truth to the life of the language I spoke while growing up in mid-Ulster. Animating the language of ordinary men and women, empathising with their daily struggles, Burns endears himself to ordinary people like no other poet. Scots would never read a word of poetry from one year to the next, could nevertheless reel off whole passages of his poetry from memory. Most of all, in benighted times when we feel assailed by negative forces, Burns' faith in the unquenchable power of the human spirit stiffens the spine and lifts the heart. His devotion to the egalitarian principles of the French Revolution is defiantly expressed in The Jolly Beggars. A fig for those by law protected, liberty is a glorious feast, Courts where cowards were erected, churches built to please the priest. Truly the work of Robert Burns constitutes a glorious fanfare for the common man and will surely be treasured wherever free spirits foregather. Love was the last private owner of Marley House before it was bought by Dublin City Council in the 70s. He was a market gardener, a horse breeder, and at one point the largest tomato producer in Ireland. He is most well known as the owner of the horse Larkspur, who seemingly came from nowhere to win the Epsom Derby in 1962. This is a poem imagining his life in the house. Naming the Foals It is the darkest time of the year in the Northern Hemisphere, months before the growing season, and I am casting about for names. The birth date is always January 1st. A name must be found before February of the second year. Six names, listed in order of preference, for someone else to decide. Each name, no more than 18 characters, no initials, no trade names, no numbers, except those above 30, and only if spelled out. No name that's already in use or that's ever been named. No words like colt or filly, 
No racetracks or famous winners. I carry a book for writing down names as they come to me. When pruning back the winter garden, glancing at the clock, pouring a drink. Sudden flight, traveler's hymn, blind faith, praise the painter, second harvest, merchant's dream, constant optimist. On this morning's programme, Little Cows by Oliver Sears. Parcels from London by Margaret Galvin. An Adulthood Dream Come True was by Tim Carey. Robert Burns, A Fanfare for the Common Man by Bert Wright. And Naming the Foals, a poem by Grace Willens. And the music, Old Polish Tango by Vladislav Lidauer, sung by Olga Mileshtuk. The Way You Look Tonight, played by Joe, Mr. Piano Henderson. Tub Thumbing by Chumbawamba and A Fond Kiss by Robert Burns, sung by Eddie Reader. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer is Sarah Binchy. And you can find out more about this and other RTE arts and culture programmes at rte.ie slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.